Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Today, I am so excited to speak with Mary Gentile. Mary is the creator of Giving Voice to Values, which is an approach to values-driven leadership development in business education and in the workplace. Instead of looking at at ethical analysis, which Mary will explain to us in a lot more detail, the GVV curriculum focuses on ethical implementation and asks key questions. Um, In terms of who Mary is, um, she's one of those guests who in a lot of ways probably needs no introduction. Um, She has been named one of Compliance Week's top minds, that was in 2017. She is one of the 100 most influential in business, es- business ethics by Ethisphere in 2015. That's always a mouthful. Um, one of the top thought leaders in trust, uh, 2015 Lifetime Achievement Award winner um, by Trust Across America and Trust Across the World. And her voice giving voice to values, how to speak your mind when you know what's right. And her curriculum is known globally. She is the professor of practice at University of Virginia Darden School of Business, a senior advisor at Aspen Institute Business and Society Program, and she's a consultant. There are just so many more accolades, it's too hard to list, but her experience and her, the GVV program have been something really illuminating for me. I'm someone who believes that people really want to be ethical and to do the right thing, and by learning more about GVV, I've gotten some new ideas and some tools. Um, and now with that, I, um, thank you so much for being here. And can you just talk a little bit about your background and how you initially got involved with the ethics and leadership movement? Sure. Thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation, Lisa. And I'm happy to do so. So, you know, I actually um, started my uh, professional career related to business and business education and corporate training. Um, um, uh, a number of years ago, back in the, in the uh, I guess it was the mid-80s, um, when I went to work at Harvard Business School. And I started there as a case writer. And then I ran and, and managed their entire case writing program. And um, after, after a few years, just I guess about two years, I remember going to my boss and saying, you know, um, this has been fun, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I want to do something more meaningful. And so I think I think I want to leave, and I just wanted to give you a little bit of notice. Um, and and she said, oh, she said, well, why do you want to leave? And I said, well, you know, this is great, but I just feel like, you know, I want to use my skills in a way where I feel like I'm making a bigger impact. And she said, oh, okay, you care about that kind of stuff? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so she, she said, well, it happened that around that time, uh, Harvard was was starting to um, uh, develop its first required curriculum around ethics and values. And they said, would you like to get involved with that? So that was kind of the, the sort of unexpected start um, to um, my work in the field of values-driven leadership development and business ethics. Um, I, I uh, was involved with helping to design and, and teach in their first required curriculum there. I also um, designed and taught their first course on managing diversity. Um, but, you know, I, I, I left Darden, I mean, I'm sorry, I left Harvard in the mid 90s. And, you know, I, I went on and spent uh, five years at Babson College in Boston. And now I'm based at the University of Virginia, the Darden School of Business. 
And I have to say that um, after working in the field of business ethics for a number of years, um, through that kind of coincidental beginning at, at HBS, um, I, I became pretty discouraged, pretty disillusioned. This was probably the late, the mid to late 90s. Um, and um, I decided to take a step away from this work because it started to feel a, a bit futile to me. <laughs> it also sometimes felt a little hypocritical um, because the way we tended to talk about ethics and values, whether it was in a, an MBA classroom or in a corporate training room, it was usually, you know, we would share some thorny ethical dilemmas and then we'd get into a discussion about it. And if we were in an academic setting, we'd send, we'd share some philosophical models of reasoning to help, you know, sort of decide, you know, uh, what about this? What about that? And to think more rigorously and consistently. Or if we were in a corporate setting, we would share the relevant laws and regulations, maybe the company code of conduct, the corporate values. And we would just basically ask people, look at this scenario and decide if this behavior is over the line or not. And so it was approaching ethics and values-driven leadership as if they were entirely cognitive, entirely intellectual challenges. Um, people would always describe it as a, a decision-making model. And what I was finding is there were a couple problems with that. The, the first problem was that when you present it that way, um, there's almost a kind of motivated reasoning that starts to kick in where people um, can start defending any position and it can get into sometimes a sort of schooling for sophistry is what I call it. <laughs> people learn to rationalize anything. Um, I had a great experience around that. I was interviewing a CEO, an entrepreneur, and um, I was talking to him about ethics and values in business. And he said, I want to tell you a story. And he told me the story about interviewing a, a, a young man who had recently graduated from one of the top MBA programs in the U.S. And he asked him if he'd taken an ethics course in his graduate training. And the, um, the gentleman said, well, yes, it was required. <laughs> and so the CEO said, well, what did you learn? And this, this, this uh, graduate said, well, I learned all the models of ethical reasoning from philosophy. And then I learned that whenever you encounter a values conflict, you should select the, the action that you want to take and you know, decide what you want to do, and then select a model of ethical reasoning that will best support what you want to do. <laughs> and so, you know, this was not exactly what the professor was hoping this gentleman would walk away with. And the CEO who was telling me, me that story was kind of, you know, yanking my chain, right? Because I was yeah. the quote unquote ethics lady. But there's a lot of truth to this, that you know, that these models of ethical reasoning and this way of of approaching ethics as if it's entirely about decision-making can lead to this kind of uh, uh, learning the rationalizations. One, one uh, faculty member at Harvard called them the, the professional rationalizations. And so that's kind of one problem with this. The other problem is that I also found that, you know, there were often many students and or business practitioners when I was in organizational settings who, you know, were motivated to do the right thing, um, but they just didn't think it was possible. So when you approach it as if it's entirely about making a decision, you stop short of actually enabling or empowering people. And so those were the kind of triggers that, that 
you know, first led me to be frustrated and, and despairing, and then later became part of the triggers for developing Giving Voice to Value. So when you started putting together the uh, GVV, Giving Voice to Values, um, you were changing this paradigm. You're talking about the talking about ethical analysis and ethical action. Um, can you talk about you know, how you came up with that? You've talked a little bit about the frustration and then also talk about kind of the questions and the way you, you, the thought process that you go through or that you speak about going through. Sure, sure. Well, so the traditional way that we would, that we, you know, that I and others would approach um, ethics and values in business education and, and in corporate training was to focus on what I call awareness and analysis. Awareness meaning we're going to share with you all the ways in which you might confront ethical conflicts given the industry you're in or the part of the world you're operating in or the function you perform within the business, whether it's you know, finance or accounting or operations or HR. Um, so you build awareness. So you're going to recognize these issues when they come up. And then the analysis piece is, as I was describing before, is to, you know, give you some, some, some uh, scenarios and say, let's figure out, is this over the line or not? Um, and so you kind of stop short. And so what I, what I was realizing, both from the stories I was sharing a moment ago, and also from a lot of research that I was starting to come across is that what we really needed to do was to develop a kind of teaching technology for action. Um, so, you know, the research I started to come across, um, there were a number of strains of research. Now, this was about 10 or 12 years ago. There's actually more now. Um, but, uh, you know, we see research in the field of psychology that talks about habit formation um, there's another uh, group of scholars who study what's what's often referred to as positive deviance. That is, they study people who deviate from the norm, but in a positive direction. They have a nice phrase. It's their phrase, not mine. They say, if you want to have an impact on people's behavior, rather than asking them to think their way into a different way of acting, it's more effective to ask them to act their way into a different way of thinking. So that was kind of provocative for me. And then I started uh, to see, you know, there's been a lot of attention in recent years to research around cognitive neurosciences. You know, it's become quite popular to look at that research. And I'm sure that your listeners have, you know, read about some of the research around brain plasticity and creating new neural pathways. The idea that we can set new patterns um, as, as we grow and learn and develop. Um, but the story I always like to tell um, comes from the field of kinesthetics or the study of physical movement. Um, so, you know, the, the story is that back when I was uh, first at Harvard Business School, I decided to take a self-defense class. And there were a lot of these classes in, in the Boston area. Uh, perhaps you've taken one at some point. They all mm -hmm. teach pretty much the same thing. They teach you the physical moves, you know, so it's fist to bridge of nose and heel to instep and knee to groin, and you practice these moves in the air, you practice ways to get out of particular holds. And, and then the idea is now, if anyone ever attacks me, right, I would know what to do. But there was one class that was different. It was called model mugging. And they, it was a <laughs> developmental model. So they'd still teach you all those moves and you'd rehearse them, you know, in the air. Um, but then the idea was at a certain point, they'd bring in a gentleman in a padded suit um, and he would, we would all line up 
and we would take turns getting attacked by this guy. And then you could use these moves on him full force um, because he was protected. And in the beginning, it was kind of ludicrous because you just waited your turn to get attacked. <laughs> but but as the weeks went on, you know, um, uh, uh, week after week, I might be looking to my left, talking to someone, and he would come and grab me, and I would never know when. I would never know what hold he was going to use. And they, it, you know, it was pretty nerve-wracking. But they explained to us that this was based on this research um, uh, called specific state muscle memory. So people who are listening who are athletes will be familiar with this. The idea is that if you rehearse something in the same physiological and emotional and cognitive state that you uh, will be in when you need to use it, that even if you freeze in that moment, your body will remember. It becomes an automatic response. So, you know, the, the tennis pro will practice her serve over and over so that when she finally goes to tournament and she's there under all that stress, her body will just normally assume the proper form. And this was kind of provocative to me. I remember being in this class and lying on my back on the floor one day because I'd failed to protect myself and this guy had taken me down. And I was looking at the ceiling and I was thinking, could you create a kind of moral muscle memory? Could you create a kind of default behavior, a default to voice, but not just to speaking up, because the other work I was doing was to gather stories from many, many, many people at all levels within companies and organizations, um, you know, about times when they'd faced values conflicts. And I was hearing that when people responded to them effectively, it wasn't usually um, a matter of, you know, telling off their boss, you know, or <laughs> shaking their fist and saying that's wrong. It was much more... It was much more often something that was more tactical, more nuanced, more strategic, something that used all of their communication skills around influence and problem redefinition um, that enabled the people they were trying to influence to save face, but also to move the behaviors in, in a more um, uh, in a direction that was more consistent with the values. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, could we create a kind of teaching technology, a pedagogical approach for training people for this kind of action so they would create this kind of moral muscle memory. Um, and, and that was, you know, the, the impetus for developing GVV. I, I then had to figure out, well, how do we do that? <laughs> and I think that's part of what you're asking. And so I created what I call the Giving Voice to Values Thought Experiment. You know, back when I was still at, at Harvard, I used to run their case writing program. And, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the traditional business case study format. You know, they're mm -hmm. 10 or 15 pages long. They usually, usually feature a very senior executive or a CEO. And, you know, at the end of the case, you know, the, the protagonist will lean back in their chair and look out the window and say, what should I do? And then, of course, there's a discussion that follows. Um, and this is a great way to teach awareness and analysis, but it doesn't really teach action. And so I decided to develop a different kind of teaching case or teaching scenario. So the GVV thought experiment cases tend to be much shorter. Sometimes they're only a few paragraphs. They feature people at every level in the organization because what I was finding through my conversations and my teaching and consulting was that people start experiencing these issues all the time, you know, very early. I mean, people start experiencing values conflicts right away. 
Um, you know, the degree and the importance of them may vary, but, but you start encountering them. But the big difference between a GVV-style uh, thought experiment case and a traditional case is that the, the thought experiment ends with a protagonist who's already decided what's right. And the question becomes, how could he or she get it done? Um, and, and the reason we do that is because I find that if I ask people, here's a scenario, what would you do? Um, you know, you'll get three kinds of answers and none of them really help us get to this action preparation I'm talking about. You get the people who would say, oh, I would do the right thing. And they may really mean it, but we know from experience that often they don't um, for a lot of reasons. And then you'll get the people who say, well, I know what you want me to say, Mary, but in the real world, it's not possible. And they may really mean that. They may just be trying to be honest or they may be, you know, playing devil's advocate. And then you get the third group who just argue with the premise. They'll just say, well, it's not wrong or it's not important or it's not a big deal or, you know. And so any one of those answers, whether they're sincere or insincere, will stop the conversation before you get to action planning and scripting and rehearsal and building that, that muscle memory, that habit I was talking about. So instead, like I say, there, our cases are what we call post-decision-making. We have a scenario and, and the, the protagonist has decided what's right. And I don't ask you to tell me whether that's what you would do. Instead, I just ask, what if you were this person who thinks this is the right thing to do? How could they be effective? And what that does is it, it brings the stress down, it brings the emotion down, it helps people think more creatively. We, you know, you look at the research on innovation and creation, and when you take the pressure down and you create this kind of safe space or laboratory, you know, now the way people are going to show they're smart and sophisticated is not by being skeptical or even cynical, it's by finding a way that you can accomplish the thing that everyone thinks it's impossible to do. So that little flip is really the heart of GVV. You know, instead of asking what's right, we ask, what if you were this person? They know what they think is right. How could they get it done effectively? Right. And I, you know, I think it's really interesting uh, to think that way because it also parallels a shift, I think, in the ethics and compliance community, um, where over the years, one of the first ways, of, and many times it's like the sheriff or the department of knows, like, here are the rules. Here's what yep. you need to do. Here is what, you know, if you don't, and if you don't do it this way, you can't do it, which becomes a, a problem because, you know, there are different considerations with business and it isn't even putting in accounting, say, it, it, putting into account, is somebody trying to do the right thing? Have they figured out, are they thinking about it? What are they actually asking as opposed to asking about a regulation? They're asking for advice on how to make the best decisions. So I think that the parallel of this um, is, is really, I think, very you know, relevant to what we all are trying to do, many of us, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's a hugely important point, Lisa. You know, when I work with companies as opposed to academic settings, you know, um, you know, quite often I'll, I'll end up working, in, um, you know, in addition to working with the, with the, the executives and management and the, and the employees themselves, I'll be collaborating with the ethics and compliance officers. And, you know, one of the nice things about the GVV approach is that it actually gives ethics officers and compliance officers another role. So instead of being 
um, only the police, so to speak, or the sheriff, as you put it, um, you actually get to be a, a coach and an advisor and a helper. You know, I remember um, the first company to utilize GVV was it has been, and, and they still use it, is Lockheed Martin. And I remember talking to some of their ethics and compliance uh, team a number of years ago, and they were saying what's interesting is that um, when people come to them with ethics issues, after they've gone through some of this ethics training, I mean, some of this GVV training, um, they'll, they'll often come and say, look, there's something going on. I, I want to deal with it, um, but will you work with me to figure out an effective way to, to stop this behavior before it crosses the line, before it becomes something that needs to be mandatorily reported, you know, because I think we're going down the wrong path. And that really enriches the role of the, the ethics and compliance officer. It, it, it gives them an opportunity to really play a significant leadership development kind of role. Um, and so I think that's one of the exciting things about it, you know, so instead of it just being about reporting and hotlines, which of course are important, but, you know, we're trying to, what GVV is often about is, is trying to expand the conversation that you're having within the organization so that you don't go down that path that then requires, you know, an investigation <laughs> and reporting and all kinds of other negative consequences. And I'm going to say one other thing, and I wanted to let the listeners know this is going to be two parts because I think we want to focus a bit more about some of the organizational items, um, and that will be our part two. But one other thing I wanted to mention to close out this part is to talk about what I really like, too, and it was the quote that I saw in a lot of your different materials, which, by the way, anyone listening are, are fantastic. Um, and it's the question of what if I were going to act on my value? What would I say and do? And how could I be most effective? I, I feel like those points are so helpful in um, that both, I mean, it's oversimplifying a lot that, that you do, but it also is a way that the business and you know people that you're working with every day who aren't thinking about ethics and compliance all the time can kind of take that three part, you know, those three questions and really boil down what they're doing to be able to bring it to the compliance ethics and compliance professionals to help them work and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those questions I think crystallize a lot of what, um, what I hope the impact of GVV will be on people who experience it. You know, I would say, look, these, these, it's not easy to do this. Um, and it's not even always going to work, <laughs> but it's important and we can get better at it. And so a lot of what GVV is about is helping people understand that actually you often have more choices than you think. Um, and, you know, it, and, you, and you don't allow yourself to see the choice unless you begin to ask those questions that you were just naming, those kinds of what-if questions. Um, and, and that also is, is building on, on recent research that suggests that, you know, the way people confront values conflicts is not to sit down and make a pro and con list or to ask, you know, what would John Rawls say? I mean, usually what happens is we have this experience and you react in sort of immediately, automatically, even emotionally. And then we rationalize post hoc why it was the right thing to do or the only thing we could do, you know, that we didn't have a choice. And so what GVV is about is actually 
trying to rewire that automatic connection. And you don't do that simply through analysis to rewire that automatic emotion, emotional, emotionally based response in terms of understanding or believing you have choices. The way you rewire that is through building a habit, uh, building practice, um, practicing responding to the kinds of com- uh, objections you might encounter and doing that pre-scripting and rehearsal and peer coaching with peers who would be the very kinds of people you would need to talk to in the actual circumstances. So I often tell people what this is really about is just changing the conversation within the organization. Yeah, and I, I think it's really helpful um, to, to change that conversation and also from a tone perspective, it is a tone of we we respect you and we think you have good judgment as opposed to here's what's the worst thing that could happen and let's review this for a while and talk about it as you were saying right. earlier. Let's right. come up with, as I think about it, as a law school exam. Now, right. we're going to pause um, and I want to say thank you for part one of this interview. Um, and listeners, we have more next week that's going to come up and we're going to talk about Um, some of the direct impacts in organizations. And thank you so much and uh, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.